Good morning, church. Lovely to see you. Well done for getting here. We're thankful for the rain, but uh, we fear it's perhaps kept one or two faint-hearted brethren away. We hope they'll be with us again next Sunday morning. Um, Anyway, this is a a very precious passage. Uh, One or two of you have heard me on it before, but I hope that you will hear fresh treasure uh, in it this morning. Uh, But if that's going to happen, we need God's help. So, won't you bow with me and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for ordering the Reformation. We thank you for Thomas Cranmer and for what you did through him to provide us with an orderly service, an orderly way of worshipping you. But all our worship is a response to your revelation in Scripture. And so now open our hearts and minds to understand more of that glorious revelation this morning and help us to respond rightly, even as we come to your holy table. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Uh, If I was to ask you, what do you believe is God's desire for your life? I wonder what you would say. Uh, If you're a Christian here this morning, um, you might say repentance. Indeed, you might well go on from there to say, well, you know, I've been attending this marvellous series on the Reformation at St Barnabas, uh, and I know that Martin Luther nailed uh, his famous document to a church door in Wittenberg, and in the very first sentence, he said that the entire life of the believer should be a life of repentance. So I think God's desire for my life is repentance. And of course you would be right. But someone else would say, well I think it's faith in Jesus. Because I've also been going to St Barnabas and the series on the Reformation and I've heard that uh, we're saved by grace through faith. So surely faith is God's desire for my life. But then somebody else pipes up and says, well, I think it's love. Uh, After all, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. So I think God wants my life to be a life of love. Now those are all excellent answers But in a sense, they are all means to an end. Because time and time again, the Bible tells us that God wants us to be a people of joy. People who find real delight in him. That's been the theme in many of our songs this morning. For example, the psalmist says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, verse 4. The Apostle Paul famously says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Philippians 4, 4. And what about Jesus himself? Well, on the night before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be complete. John 15, verse 11. 
So God's desire for your life and for mine is that we should be people who are full of joy. Not a sort of mindless joy that is all smiles but no substance, but real joy that comes from knowing God personally, understanding everything that he's done for us through Christ and being absolutely confident that we can trust him with everything. Other people should be able to see our joy. And yet often that isn't the case. Too many Christians, I think, in the West look as if joy was something that, well, we know very little about. And the main reason for that, the number one joy killer in our lives, is anxiety. It is fear about the future. Our lives are so pressured, so cluttered with stuff, that there's never any shortage of things to be anxious about. So we say to ourselves, what if I lose my job? What if my health starts to deteriorate? What if my wife or my husband leaves me? The list of potential sources of anxiety is endless. But they all have one thing in common. They are all joy killers. And when we give in to them, we miss out on the joy that God has for us today because we aren't trusting God for tomorrow. And when that happens, we stop being the people God wants us to be because we're not rejoicing in the Lord. Now that was actually the situation at the time of the Protestant Reformation. There was, of course, plenty to be anxious about. Poverty, war, disease were never far away. But in addition to that, there was a deep-rooted spiritual anxiety in the churches. Because for centuries, um, people had been taught that there were things you must do and there was money to be paid in order for the saving work of Jesus to be effective in your life. And so inevitably, the average worshipper in church was always anxious. He could never be sure that he'd actually done enough or paid enough to be right with God. He had no assurance that he would ever get to heaven. And so he lived in pretty much a constant state of anxiety. Now that is the mood at the beginning of John chapter 14. Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going away. So glance back up the page a little bit to chapter 13 and verse 33 where Jesus says to his disciples, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, Where I am going, you cannot come. And the reaction of the disciples is reflected, first of all, in Peter's question in verse 37. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And then first Thomas and then Philip 
ask very similar questions in the next few verses. And that's telling us, you see, that the disciples are anxious. Their lives, of course, have been completely wrapped up with Jesus for the last three years. How can they possibly face the future without him? And Jesus' reply is a lesson both for his disciples then and for us this morning. Just look at verse 1 again in chapter 14. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. You see, what the Lord Jesus is saying is that when we're faced with anxieties and fears about the future, we have a choice. Are we going to give way to them and allow them to become joy killers? Or are we going to deal with them in a biblical way? Because, you see, you can't be troubled and trusting at the same time. They are opposites. If I'm troubled, by definition, I am not trusting Jesus. One excludes the other. We have to choose. And in chapter 14, Jesus gives us a whole host of reasons why we really can trust him for the future. But the whole point is, we have to do it. We are responsible whether we believe him or not. If we do, well then all the what-ifs that give us the anxiety, um, giving us sleepless nights, those what-ifs become even if. So think about it. What if I were to lose my job becomes even if I lose my job, I will still trust Jesus. What if my health starts to deteriorate becomes, even if my health starts to deteriorate, I will trust Jesus. It's all about trusting Jesus. But you see, I can only say I'm trusting Jesus and mean it if I've got solid reasons for doing that. So what are they? Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus gives us three wonderful promises. And if we understand these promises and believe them, well, they will be a shield protecting our hearts and our minds against the fears which so often and far too easily steal our joy away. The three promises are set out for you on the outline in the bulletin. Number one, heaven is our home. Promise number two, Jesus is the way. And promise number three, prayer is our privilege. So firstly then, heaven is our home. Verses two and three. The Bible is constantly impressing on us that heaven is the destiny for every Christian and we're constantly being urged to look forward to it. But having said that, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but there are very few places in the New Testament 
where we're given any hard facts about heaven. And I take it that the reason for that is because it is quite literally too wonderful for words. Human language doesn't actually have the categories to describe it adequately. But John chapter 14 is one of those few places. And because the information that we're given here comes from the only person who's been to heaven and who can talk to us from personal experience, we should pay very close attention to what he has to say. Jesus tells us four things about it. First, he tells us that heaven is a place. It is an actual location. Verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. So contrary to what I think many people think today, heaven isn't simply a religious idea. It is an actual location and Jesus has already gone there to prepare a place in the Father's house for the Father's children. Jesus never uses words accidentally and here he very deliberately uses the language of the home so that we can begin to connect with the experience of what heaven actually will be like. So Bishop J.C. Ryle has a marvellous comment on verse 2. This is what he says. Home is the place where we are loved for our own sakes and not for our performance or our possessions. It is the place where we are loved unconditionally, never forgotten and always welcome. Now that is the atmosphere in heaven. Second, heaven is the place where Jesus is. In verse 3, <coughs> Jesus says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. So when we die and go to heaven, we go to be with Jesus. And don't forget, will you, that Jesus is there in his resurrection body. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a physical body that his disciples could see and touch. They could talk to him and he could talk to them. Now that's how it's going to be for us. Being in heaven means being with Jesus in our resurrection bodies in a physical reality. So it's the exact opposite, isn't it, of the idea that many people have that we're going to be floating around on a cloud in a disembodied state. The Bible doesn't say that. Third, heaven is a place with ample space for all who trust in Jesus. Look at verse 2 again. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
You see, there's no danger of arriving at the gates of heaven and finding that it's fully booked. Um, the very idea of that is to sort of reduce heaven to the status of a bed and breakfast in Cape Town at the height of the tourist season. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. There are Christians who think like that, but the Bible doesn't teach it. Everybody who has put their trust in the Lord Jesus is expected. Our reservation is guaranteed and we will be warmly welcomed. Fourth, we will be escorted to heaven by Jesus himself. Verse 3, Jesus says, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now that might perhaps be a fresh thought for some of us this morning because there has sometimes been a tendency in Christian circles to say that when we arrive at the gates of heaven we're going to be asked to produce sufficient evidence of our faith in order to be let in. And the implication of that way of thinking is that um, if the evidence that we provide is uh, rather deficient, well perhaps we'll be turned away Uh, a bit like arriving at passport control, only to find that your passport expired last week. But you see, that idea is not biblical, is it? Jesus says that when we die, the gates of heaven are going to swing wide open for us because Jesus will be with us. Isn't that a comforting thought? So if you're a Christian then these verses are a very clear reminder that heaven is your home and your place is already booked and paid for. But the second promise in the passage is that Jesus is the way. Look at verse 5. Thomas, in verse 5, asks the question that everybody wants to ask, Lord, We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now verse 6 is actually a very compact summary of the Gospel. If somebody asks you this week to explain the Gospel... Uh, and you've only got a limited amount of time to do it, verse 6 is a terrific place to start. The message couldn't possibly be clearer. Verse 6 is saying that if we know Jesus in the sense that we accept his words as truth from God, then you and I can be absolutely certain that we're on the right road and that, and that the life of the age to come is ours while we yet live. It's ours this morning. Now you can't have a greater assurance than that. Jesus is the way. But at the same time it has to be said that verse 6 has caused more offence to non-Christians than just about any other verse in the entire Bible. For a start, no other religious leader in history has ever made such extraordinary claims about themselves. 
the Christian author C.S. Lewis captures this rather imaginatively in one of his essays. Uh, in the essay, he's writing about three other world religions, and he makes this comment. Now, supposing you were to go to the Buddha and ask him, are you the ultimate? Are you God in person? He would answer, son, you are still in the veil of illusion. You haven't begun to understand. I can show you the pathway, but I am not the ultimate. If you were to go to Muhammad and ask him, are you Allah, the true God? Are you God incarnate? He would firstly tear his garments and secondly chop off your head. If you were to go to Confucius and uh, ask him, are you the it? Are you the ultimate that's really out there or whatever it is? Confucius would say, remarks not in accordance with reality are not in good taste. That's C.S. Lewis's rather humorous way of saying that no one else has ever made the astonishing claim that Jesus makes in verse 6. But people have a great deal of difficulty with it. Now why is that? Well, I think there are two reasons. First, there is a difficulty in understanding. What is the Lord Jesus really saying here? And I think perhaps the easiest way to tackle that is to be clear about what Jesus is not saying. You see, Jesus is not saying, I am a way to the Father, as if he's just one of several equally valid alternatives which all end up in the same place. That might be a little bit more digestible for our non-Christian family and friends. It would certainly be a lot more politically correct. But if that were what Jesus meant, then he wouldn't have said the second half of verse 6, would he? No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus is the way to the Father in the sense that he is the only way. Now some people will say, you know, that is exclusive and arrogant and I simply can't accept it. But that's to misunderstand Jesus completely. Because immediately before this passage, back in chapter 13, we find the Lord Jesus dressed as a servant washing his disciples' feet. Not in arrogance, great humility. And of course, that is a picture, isn't it, of the invitation of the cross. Jesus is willing to wash away the sins of literally anybody who comes to him so that they can be made clean for heaven. But what he's saying here in chapter 14 is that only he can do it. No one else can. But something else that Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying, you know, I know the way to the Father, as if he is simply standing by the side of the road offering helpful advice to anybody who cares to ask, how can we get to heaven? No, he himself is the way to the Father. 
And I think one cross-reference here will be useful for us. So keep a finger in John 14 and turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 10 on page 855. Hebrews chapter 10, page 855. It's in the right-hand column, verse 19. These are fascinating words because they tell us how the first generation of Christians understood what Jesus meant in John chapter 14. And actually, they're also words that prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. Hebrews 10, verse 19, the right-hand column of page 855. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us uh, through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's clear, isn't it? Jesus is the only way to heaven because it was his broken body and it was his shed blood that paid the price for sin. Only Jesus could achieve that for us Because only Jesus is fully man and fully God. And because he has done it, he's opened the way through the curtain that separates sinful man from a holy God. So everybody who's been washed by Jesus can approach God with confidence and with full assurance. Now, does that sound exclusive and arrogant to you? Surely it's the most inclusive offer imaginable. But I said that there were two difficulties that people have with the claim of Jesus in uh, verse 6. And the second of these is not a difficulty of understanding what Jesus meant. It's actually the difficulty of the human heart. It's our only other cross-reference today, but won't you turn back to the Old Testament with me to Jeremiah chapter 6 on page 533. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, page 533, and it's in the left-hand column. Page 533, Jeremiah chapter 6. This is actually a message from the Lord God to people who were looking for culturally convenient ways to find favour with God and were wondering why God wasn't listening. It's rather familiar that, isn't it? Because it's where a lot of people are today. We want to approach God in a culturally convenient way on our terms. Oh, he's not listening. What a pity. Verse 16, Jeremiah chapter 6. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. 
Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Pause on that. You see, God's desire for people looking for culturally convenient ways to worship him is that they stop doing that because he has given them a good way. It is his way. And he's urging them to come back to it. Now look at the very end of verse 16. But you said, we will not walk in it. So you see, the problem that people have with the words of Jesus in John 14 is exactly the same as it's always been. God has opened the way to heaven through the cross of the Lord Jesus. The way is open to everybody. And if you're not yet a Christian and you want to go to heaven, if you want the eternal life that Jesus is offering, he'll be overjoyed to give it to you right here and now. All you have to do is ask him. The problem is, though, that by nature, we don't like God's way. We want to go our own way. And so that means, you see, that when you die, if you find that you are not in heaven, it won't be because God doesn't want you. It'll be because you chose to go your own way. Well, come back to John 14, and um, while you're turning back there, let's try and summarise where we've got to so far. The cure for anxiety in the Christian life is the wonderful promise that heaven is our home. It is the guarantee that Jesus is the way. And thirdly, it's the comfort that prayer is our privilege. Prayer is our privilege. Now remember the context in uh, John 14 because Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. It's the upper room discourse. And his primary objective is to help them understand that his death is the very thing that will make it possible for them to carry on his mission when Jesus is no longer with them. What I think is so very surprising in this chapter is that this isn't second best. This isn't uh, the second prize, as it were. It's not plan B. Jesus, very obviously, is not thinking that way. Have a look with me at verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, you and I might read that and say to ourselves, well, that can't possibly be right because Jesus did some amazing things that nobody else has done before or since. He walked on water. Uh, he stilled a storm with a word. He fed 5,000 people from one boy's packed lunch. Now the disciples never did that. 
So how can you say that the disciples of Jesus will do greater things? Uh, Did he mean greater in quantity? Uh, Greater in number? No, what Jesus meant was greater, not in number, but in significance. Now, you see, it is true to say that some of the things Jesus did were unique. They testified to his deity, and they've never, ever been repeated by anybody else. But there is a sense, isn't there, in which many of the miracles of Jesus were time-bound. Because whenever Jesus healed a sick person, a day would later come when that person died. Even Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, eventually died again. But when Jesus went back to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, you remember when Peter stood up to preach to the crowd, 3,000 people were converted. Those people were saved for eternal life. Now, conversions on that scale never, ever happened during the earthly ministry of Jesus because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come. But now, the Spirit has come. And that means that everything has changed. Jesus says in verse 12, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Think about that. That means that every single Christian, all of us here this morning who believe in Jesus, have the potential to share the gospel so that people respond and receive eternal life. And the promises of chapter 14 will then be true for them. How do we do it? And the answer is by prayer. Verse 13, Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask, whatever you pray for in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. See, what Jesus is promising here is that when we pray for our unsaved friends, He's giving us the privilege of calling on divine power from heaven to accomplish the greater things. The winning of more people for eternal life in heaven. And when Christ answers your prayer like that, even just once, then you discover a comfort and an assurance in your own heart that nothing on earth can possibly match. Let's pray. Let's have a moment or two of quiet as we bring our own personal prayers to God.
Heavenly Father, we praise you that your desire for us is that we should be people of joy. People who've discovered what it means to truly delight in you. Please forgive us for the times when we've allowed anxiety to get the upper hand in our hearts. We ask that you would open our eyes afresh to see that you really have opened the way to heaven through the cross of the Lord Jesus. That he's done everything necessary to ensure that we will get there. And that when the time comes, Jesus will bring us into heaven in person. It's all through Christ alone. So help us to trust you with our lives now in every detail so that whatever our circumstances are, we might be people of joy who truly delight in you. And Father, make us people who pray with confidence, trusting that you really will bless all our efforts to win more people for Christ. And all these things we ask in his name and for his glory.